This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, joined by my good friend uh, Dave Green. How you doing, Dave? I'm Bob. I'm you know something. Uh, this is three times in a row. I'm not Bob. I'm Dave. I'm fine. Thank you for asking. You bet. Now we're doing this particular chit chat version of uh, our podcast in part because we said we'd do it the last time. I don't know, Dave, you want to remember back to uh, one of the previous times anyway that we did this where I I talked with you about history stories that I've written for the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. I promised to do a story on the creation of the great Sacandaga Lake, but we never did it. Well, let's do it now, Bob. All right. A creation of the Sacandaga Reservoir as it was called in 1930, was the culmination of an immense engineering project that radically changed people's lives and the geography of the Southern Adirondacks. To me, that's one of the big points about this, Dave. In fact, uh, one of the authors that I met up in uh, Glens Falls at the Chronicle Book Fair, Russell Dunn, author of the book Adventures Around the Great Sacandaga Lake, he loves the Great Sacandaga Lake, uh, but he one of his quotes was, even the dead made sacrifices. 22 cemeteries holding 4,000 bodies were moved. I mean, this was this huge disruption for the lives of the people who lived there. And I think uh, Russell Dunn has said this, and I would second it. I don't know if you could accomplish that today. That was, well, that's what I, that was my first thought. I mean, you couldn't possibly get the logistics together and all the legal paperwork. What year did they start the project? It was in the 1920s. I'm not sure of the start, but the uh, finish date was uh, 1930. And it was done for a reason that, in a sense, made no difference or little difference to the people who lived there. The reason they created the reservoir, basically, was to prevent the Hudson River from flooding in Albany, Waterville, Troy, Green Island, uh, Cohoes, places like that, which was really bad. I mean, the, the floods used to be much worse than they are today after building the reservoir. But, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, the high water still happens. But apparently they had a certain, um, I think 1913, I found it here in my notes. In 1913, the flooding was particularly severe in the Albany area. I remember when I worked for the State University, uh, their headquarters is the old Delaware and Hudson building downtown Albany, and we had pictures in the downstairs lobby showing those floods, you know, and the water was into the building, uh, you know, in the 1913, uh, 14, 15, 16. Come to think of it, the building might not have been built in 1913, but it kept uh, getting getting worse, yeah, if you will. Don't let that fact get in the way. Yeah. Uh, so uh, anyway, there developed the political will uh, down in Albany. Uh, which was, of course, is the state capital, to do something about this. They didn't want this uh, to, you know, continue. So now I found the answer to the question you asked. It appears it was in 1922 that the state legislature appointed a board to execute the project of building the Sacandaga Reservoir, and they had a motto even, Dave, tame the Hudson by taming the Sacandaga River. Okay, so what they were dealing with was the, the feed to what became the Sacandaga Lake was or is the Sacandaga River. Correct. And this is a river that flows north or north and east and intersects the Hudson. I'm not sure it intersects directly because there's another river involved called the Black River. But the Sacandaga River fed the Hudson River 
uh, or it feeds the Hudson River, and that's why the, the flooding took place uh, downstream. Uh, so the idea was, or is, to build this big holding tank, the Sacandaga Reservoir, uh, and so you can control the flow of water. I mean, sometimes you want more water, because another issue was uh, the um, paper mills and other companies that use logs. I think back in the day they were building this, they still maybe sent the logs right down the river. So you wanted m some more water, so you might uh, lower the Sacandaga Reservoir to let uh, that happen. The area where they flooded uh, in you know, Sacandaga is a Native American word. I've seen two translations of it, one flowing grass, the other drowned land. Apparently it did flood up there uh, to some extent, or I get the impression maybe it was kind of marshy or something like that. Uh, the, the engineering of this is fascinating because how did they I mean, they must, they obviously knew where, so to speak, the water was going to stop. You know, you begin to fill up the bathtub and say, hey, it's beginning to overflow at the south <laughs> end, it. folks. What do we do now? But somebody must, you know, interesting. And, and well, I know I'm kind of skipping around here, but it took, it must have taken several years for it to create once the gates were I, open. I, well, I think, oh, you mean the, the, the no, it, it happened relatively quickly. I think it was a matter of weeks. Really? Or uh, when they finally got to that point after building the Conklingville Dam. But you mentioned the engineering. The head uh, engineer was a man named Edward Haynes Sargent. Edward Haynes Sargent. He lost some sleep. What's that? He lost some sleep. Oh, I bet he did. And there was some talk of naming this body of water Sargent Lake. But that didn't take off. That doesn't work. Now, Sargent was a Massachusetts native, but when he came up to the Adirondacks to work on this project, he met a woman and married a woman from Northville named uh, Emma Olmsted. Um, and she met him or he met her when he was doing survey work on the Sacandaga Valley. Um, well, just to wrap up his story, if you will, or the end of it. I mean, he died, obviously, as we all do, and he's buried up in Edinburgh. And his tombstone is the only one facing the lake in that particular cemetery <laughs> <laughs> because I guess they figured he wanted to, to see the lake after he, after he had Maybe, passed away. Bob, I'll bet it's just the opposite. I'll bet he never <laughs> wanted to see the place again <laughs> after all be. years of engineering. And I thought for a second you were taking us in the direction of, you know, meeting his to-be wife in the area and all this. And you say, well, you know what? I love you so much. Well, I'm going to build you a lake. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, he could have told her that. I don't yeah, know. You never know. But when they were working on this in the 1920s, residents of the Sacandaga Valley, I mean, it was called the Sacandaga Valley, it still is, really, they were skeptical as the work gangs arrived. Uh, many from outside the area, that was another bone of contention. They didn't even necessarily hire local people to do this work. Uh, Multi-million dollar work. I don't really have the, the price tag here, but... They, uh, the people that came in, the workers that came in, cut down trees. They tore down farm buildings and villages. And as Russell Dunn said, even moved cemeteries. In fact, some of the crews are one of the names that the locals used to describe the crews. They call them the barn busters, the barn busters, because they'd come around and knock down your barn. Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Just a thought here geographically, once again, within what is now the lake, there must have been far fewer homeowners at the time. The pieces of land must have been much bigger, so to speak, than they are today. They weren't 200-foot lots they had to buy up. No, and that's true. 
and it was a pretty poor area, really. I mean, All right. you know, with some exceptions. So the whole was, thing came as a welcome relief. In a, you know, in a way, right? Not, probably not to the people who lived there. I mean, there were probably some people of means. But there was one major facility that was flooded, and that was a big amusement park that had been started by the Fonda, Johnstown, and Gloversville Railroad. Uh, that was a railroad line that started in Fonda and went to Johnstown and Gloversville. But as a lot of railroads did, it looked for a way to build revenue by uh, making an amusement park. That was kind of a theme or uh, in the late 1800s. Wait a minute, Bob, you're giving me another thought here. All I can think of today is Amtrak and the Amtrak Amusement Park. Somewhere in there, there's a loss of credibility. <laughs> well, I know, but back then it was a big deal. All right. And they called it Coney Island North. Right. It was up in the general area of Northville. Uh, and it was, rather, you know, it was large. I mean, it had um, places, you know, hotels. It had, uh, you know, um, the lake was, you know, they made a little lake so that people could use that for uh, recreation. They had know carnival rides they had entertainment you know people would uh, come and, and sing there in the up until uh, 1930 when it was flooded uh, and one thing that that I don't know somehow gets recorded by history is they had this very elaborate merry-go-round with handmade horses and what they did was disassemble that and take it to Shelburne Village Museum in Vermont uh, where it's um, is, is to this day, and not to mention the fact that you at that particular time probably not everybody had an automobile. You had to buy a train ticket to get there. Was it? Well, that was the, that was the hope. And yeah. in fact, they could you know they probably drew from not only let's say Albany, Schenectady, and Troy, but even from New York. You know, people could come up on the train and, and then uh, come up and stay at uh, Sacandaga Park, as it was called. But in, in terms of the people that actually lived there, former Fulton County historian William Loveday Jr. has this quote. For a lot of them, it was their family land for generations. They just hated to leave. They had to take the state estimates for their land. This caused a lot of bad feeling. Other people could see the benefits of it. There were terrible floods from Wells down to Northville and along the Hudson River in the last year before the reservoir was created, quote from William Loveday. After one of my stories on the Sacandaga ran in the Gazette, I heard from the descendant of a local lawyer who had represented a lot of these folks and was able to you know, get more money for them. But the state initially was not very forthcoming with the cash, Dave. So it was all, uh, the, the state, it was eminent domain takeover. Yeah, eminent domain, and they had to come up with a with a price. And what made the reservoir the reservoir, I mean, you can, you know, clear the land and all that stuff, but was the, the Conklingville Dam, which is located in Hadley in uh, Saratoga County. Again, going back to Mr. Loveday, a workforce of 1,200 men uh, built the dam, which they started in November 1927. The dam is made mostly of earth and stone fill with a core of hardened cement. And people and the dam, or the building of the dam became its own tourist attraction. People came from miles around in the late 20s to uh, watch construction of the 95-foot-high structure. According to the history of the town of Edinburgh, 
which is one of the towns up there, Saratoga County Town. It's where uh, my uh, daughter and son-in-law actually have their camp is in Edinburgh. And Edinburgh is on both sides of what became the reservoir. Uh, but So according to their website history, town of Edinburgh, buildings that were not moved by 1929 were torn down or burned. And an estimated 1,100 people were forced to abandon their homes uh, in the area where they built the reservoir. Mention Russell Dunn, author of Adventures of the Around the Great Sacandaga Lake. This, I think, is a very interesting development that happened. Uh, Russell writes, quote, In the fall of 1929, many people deliberately drove through the Sacandaga Valley, winding their way along the interconnecting roads through villages that no longer existed and past forests that no uh, longer held trees simply because they knew they could never do it again. Do you have you ever seen any pictures pre lake pictures? Yes, and uh, I've saw one in particular. The Fulton County Museum has quite there in Gloversville has quite a collection of um, such pictures. I remember they had a display about it one year, and one that I thought was most moving was in a place called Bachelorville, where the bridge was built. You know, the original bridge, and then there's a relatively new bridge. Uh, at Bachelorville over one inlet or whatever you call it of the of the Great Sacandaga. Um, and it just looked so, I don't know, poignant. You know, there's this, these people sitting like on orange crates or barrels and so forth, you know, just, and everything around them has been torn down. You can see them tearing down the remains of a final house or something like that. So that through the bachelor, the bachelorville bridge area of the lake, that particular dog leg of the lake, that was the deepest part of the valley is what you're saying? I don't know. Okay. But, you know, but you make a good point that it's the dog leg. I know my son-in-law, Michael, frequently says that up there is like bunny ears there. Yeah, that's it. You got the big body of the Sacandaga down by Broad Alban and Mayfield and so forth. But you get up by Edinburgh and Bachelorville, and then you've got two bunny ears instead, you know. And the bridge is over that small uh, part, uh, you know, that part of the, the lake. And they cross the other like, bunny ear, which wasn't as big a deal, <laughs> wasn't as big a, you know, big a bridge. But they crossed that with another bridge. There was controversy when they built the bridge in Bachelorville. People down at the major uh, part of the lake thought the bridge should have been there. But that would have been a much longer span and so forth. In, in particular, the people at the community called Fish House uh, felt sold out by the uh, state or the powers that be because they thought they had been promised to have the bridge, but they didn't get it. And therefore, their little community wasn't much afterward. Fish House has an interesting name, but that name comes from uh, the days of Sir William Johnson, the colonial uh, man, uh, great friend of the Mohawk uh, nation. He lived in Johnstown, but Fish House was his fishing place. So he called it Fish House. Got it. even build a road. Making more sense than ever now, Bob. There we go. All right, but you were asked, again, we're talking about the creation of the Sacandaga Reservoir, and it was in the spring of 1930 the time came to abandon all the hamlets. Um, Here are a few names. Osborne's Bridge, Day Center, Huntsville, 
And then on March 27, 1930, a quiet ceremony, it was said, took place at the Conklingville Dam. And Chief Engineer Sergeant, we do remember him. He's the guy who's going to be buried in the cemetery at Edinburgh. A Chief Engineer Sergeant turned down the valves to close the gates and commence flooding of the valley. Um, I don't have a boy. There's no turning back at that point, Bob. <laughs> no, once, once I can see. I can, you can but just can about... you imagine what, what they thought? You know, Sir Sergeant, as the thing fills up, is it going to hold? Oh, I hope. They, I hope I got this right. <laughs> yeah, I know. And then creation of the 29-mile-long reservoir enabled people, many from Johnstown, Gloversville, Amsterdam, and Schenectady to build relatively inexpensive lakeside camps in the 1940s and 1950s. I mean, you know, they're always saying about beachfront property, they don't create any more of it. Mm -hmm. Well, in this case, the state of New York, or this regulating agency, created new lakefront property. You know, there'd been no lake. Now, all of a sudden, here's a lake. That's so, true, unless you were the guy who owned the last house in the valley where the lake was going to be created. You know, they said, no, true. we're going one block farther. Yep. And it, so it became, so then it started having this dual role. It was built for flood control, but you kind of forget about that if, you, if you're up there for a couple of weeks, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, it's built for flood control. It's built but, for and, fishing. Uh, right, it's built for fishing, it's built for swimming, until, of course, they start messing with the lake level. And that's been a big to-do ever since they created the reservoir, that in a typical year, the lake starts out high. You know, you go up there, after the or the start of of a new season and the lake level is is way up usually and you know maybe it's covering what youth regard as your beach and then as time goes on that um goes down and then sometimes at the end of the season you're way down you know and you got to walk a half a mile to your boat or something. That's right. You own rocks. You had no idea you were the... Uh, the, the last few years, there haven't been too many complaints. The lake's been pretty steady, has it not? I would say not as many. There was a one bad... I think the bad year was 2011, or the recent that comes to my mind, when we had the, you know, the tropical storms mm -hmm. that hit the Mohawk Valley and Schaharie Valley as well. So a lot of water went into the Great Sacandaga. All of a sudden, and, you have a longer driveway to plow in the winter. <laughs> yeah. And I remember in particular that a big uh, public beach, Northampton Beach, was flooded for an awful long time. I think it was in uh, 2011. It is a beautiful lake. The view from the bridge as you cross the bridge, if you can actually take time to glance if you're driving the car. But th there's something about the way the sun hits that southern reach of the lake. Oh, it, it is beautiful. It is nice. And the name was changed from Sacandaga Reservoir to Great Sacandaga Lake in 1961 by the state legislature because, uh, you know, it's just better to promote Great Sacandaga Lake than Sacandaga Reservoir. I mean, we, people are, are afraid. Well, I was going to say some sort of barnyard thing. You know, they got to be real careful when they go swimming. But you don't. Nobody's going to drink this water. It's really a... Right. That, that is not a water. That is a not a drinkable water supply. Although, now that I've said that, and I honestly don't know, but I think there are some communities around the lake that use, use it for their drinking water. Right. But anyway, it's not... You know, that's not the main purpose of the Great Sacandaga Lake. And they would have called it just Sacandaga Lake, but there already was a Sacandaga Lake. It's a small lake uh, just up the up the line in in September. So, I'm right. sorry, in up, September. Up in, 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 in Speculator. In Speculator. Located Which in is near September. 
I think so. And you have to understand, as we get older, these things are kind of blend together. For that's us. right. That's right. And it's September when the people uh, leave the Great Sacandaga, <laughs> usually, although there's some activity there in the wintertime. You know, that's when we go up to visit uh, my daughter and son-in-law. We say, boy, I wonder this like in the winter. In fact, we know, uh, you know, neighbors of theirs do spend the winter, and they say, well, it does get kind of uh, desolate, lonely, but they like it that way. You know, they. I was, you know, I was talking with a friend just the other day, and he owned, or he did own several years ago, uh, lakefront property. As a matter of fact, it was Derider Lake, which was out central New York way. And we were discussing, I said, uh, I said, his name is Brian. Brian, do you still own the camp? He said, no, we have sold it. We sold it the year before the big time prices for water for waterfront property kicked in. You know, they yep. sold it for a song, and we're we're not talking very long ago. We're talking, I think, the late 70s. Yep. Because he said the next year it went from zero to 60 in price. Well, I would say that the Great Sacandaga Lake properties have increased in value no doubt. pretty r- remarkably in recent years, you know, as the other lakes get crowded even. Uh, and one issue up there is when you buy some uh, a cottage or a home or whatever, and you're interested in the lake, you want to have your lakefront rights. And that's <laughs> controlled by this regulating agency, the Hudson River, Black Regger River Regulating District. And it's, it's really a mystery to me how it happens. That's but, another song. <laughs> I know. For example, you can have, um, you know, a cottage where maybe you couldn't even see the lake, but somehow you've got lakefront rights, whereas other people who are, like, looking at the lake, they don't have the lakefront rights, you know. So it's, uh, it's something you got to watch out for if you're buying land up there, Dave. We uh, made a couple of notes in reference to this podcast today, one being the Sacandaga Lake, which we have covered. And yes. you mentioned uh, before we started something to do with St. Johnsville. St. Joe, yes, exactly. Uh, uh, St. Johnsville is the location of the collections of a man named Robert M. Hartley. And I know, Dave, just to make this personal here, I believe when you were a kid, you used to collect baseball cards. Well, I tried, yes, I think at the time. Yogi Berra gave them all away. Well, Robert M. Hartley. What's that? Smart move. Gave away my Yogi Berra baseball cards. Robert M. Hartley didn't do that. He collected things and he saved them. He was a man of some means, you know, some money, and his collections are now in the Museum of the Margaret Rainey Library in St. Johnsville. Although Robert Hartley wasn't from St. Johnsville, he was uh, from the town of Florida, which is uh, just south of Amsterdam. When he died in 1940, Hartley left a treasure trove of basically, he, he collected all kinds of things, but the main items he collected were sketches of powder horns, Native American artifacts, and maybe the most unusual in a way, military buttons. Robert Hartley was descended from a, a family that had come originally from England, the town of Florida. There were kind of wealthy farmers in the town of Florida, and I'm not clear whether Hartley had a fortune on the side, but it was said really that he was the farmer and he, and he kept the farm going uh, very well uh, down in uh, down in Florida, uh, was involved in politics. He was town supervisor for a while. He was justice of the peace for a while. But he spent a, a lot of time gathering all these um, items for his collection. And his collection, for example, of or his work, really, his sketches of powder horns, probably the most unusual, 
powder horns were what the frontier fighters used to use to keep their powder dry. And they were very interesting objects. They were often made out of a cow's horn. And there was another man who had artistic skills, Rufus Grider, who started painting the powder horns. The reason you paint them is each soldier's or frontiersman's powder horn uh, had its own decorations. That was sort of a thing you did. You decorated your powder horn. Uh, one thing that came to my mind about that, it's, it's like how they decorated uh, World War II fighter planes, you know, with shark's teeth or things of that nature. So that's one thing that, that Hartley did. I mean, that wasn't so much a collection as he would look at the powder horns and paint them. But then he collected Indian artifacts, starting where he lived in the town of Florida and throughout the Mohawk Valley from the Mohawk Nation. He also collected uh, these items, you know, or traded these items with other collectors. So he ended up with a big collection, even went on some trips where he would go and... Um, um, to other states like Tennessee, Virginia, and he would uh, search through the uh, Indian sites there. But then he has this unusual collection of buttons, um, military buttons from the American Revolution and the War of 1812. He found these buttons on numerous trips to old campsites and battlefields. The original catalog for his collection says that Robert Hartley found buttons for nearly every British and provincial regiment serving in America during the Revolution and the War of 1812. As you might imagine, Hartley belonged to the Button Club of the United States, and his collection was exhibited at historical meetings throughout New York. In 1911, Hartley composed a poem called Old Buttons, which concludes, oh, but could these old buttons tell more than we know of them now? Could they tell us who wore them? And could we see them who saw them in the days of Cornwallis and Howe? And I thought it was good to sort of fill that out because I sort of remember those names, but it was Charles Cornwallis, who was a British general, and Richard Howe, who was a British naval commander during the American Revolution. Again, when Robert Hartley died, all these collections, the powder horn sketches, the buttons, the Indian artifacts, he had Civil War artifacts and so forth, were donated to the Margaret Rainey Library in St. Johnsville. And I talked to Dawn Lamphier, who's the librarian up there, and she said that one of the reasons he donated there was he knew Joseph Rainey, who was the one who gave the money for the creation of the library. Joseph Rainey had a big knitting mill in St. Johnsville and named the library after his mom. And that library is really kind of an, uh, a little treasure or a historic place to visit. It kind of goes along the lines of those folks that we talk with from, uh, from the Fort Plain area about all the sites you can visit in western Montgomery County. Their whole basement is a museum and it's a big basement. Uh, the, the Hartley collection is just part of what they have. They also have a lot on the history of St. Johnsville and other things having to do with, uh, uh, with um, the American Revolution and uh, American history in that, that part of the world. So Robert Hartley, the big button collector from the town of Florida, put his collection in St. Johnsville, as you correctly said a long time ago, Dave. What did I say? 
Well, you said this has to do with St. Johnsville. Oh, I see. back to the beginning. All right, now I'm caught up. I am, as you were explaining this, I was trying to figure out exactly, you know, which came first, you know, as they say, the chicken or the egg. So if we collect something, he collected buttons and such. I mean, is it that as a kid or at some point in your life where you're born with the gene already built into your brain somewhere, I'm going to collect buttons? Yeah. Because it's already there, or do you find the first button and then you're compelled? And uh, never mind, another whole subject. Uh, another whole story. Yeah, another whole story. Well, this has been the Historian's uh, Podcast. I thank Dave Green for uh, joining us. I do have uh, a new book out on Mohawk Valley history. It's called Lost Mohawk Valley, available at bookstores uh, everywhere, also on Amazon.com. Uh, or you can uh, well, maybe just plug one particular store uh, at the old Peddler's Wagon, 175 Church Street in Amsterdam. You find all my books. This has been the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Thank you.